We'll be resuming our series in the book of Acts. It's been a few months since we've been in the series, and I'm excited to get back to it because it is a, uh, it's an incredible book of the Bible. And I want to remind you that this is broadcast, my, uh, most of my sermons are, but especially this series, on 550 radio stations. And so as I preach, even if it's a lower Wednesday summer crowd with talk time going on and everything else, I want you to feel like there are thousands of people that are hearing this and uh, that they're going to get encouraged by this, that we can all around the globe uh, serve our Lord better after hearing this, uh, this sermon. To the ends of the earth. I just love that phrase, to the ends of the earth. It kind of sounds like the opening to a major Hollywood epic movie, right? To the ends of the earth. But it is an apt series title for the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a wonderful, wonderful book of the Bible. It is the record of the birth of the ecclesia. It is the record of the birth of the church. And the book of Acts really has three main divisions. Now, I've already covered this in the introduction, but that's been a little bit. And so let me review that the the first seven uh, chapters of the book of Acts are dealing with the first circle and these concentric circles. The first circle of the church is Jerusalem. So the first seven chapters of the book of Acts deal with Jesus' apostles and disciples' ministry and effect upon Jerusalem. The next five chapters deal with the next concentric circle, which is the the region around Jerusalem, Judea from Jerusalem south, and Samaria from Jerusalem north. Kind of like I would consider that our our Chicago land region here in Chicago, or maybe the, the state of Illinois. So the, the ministry is expanding. And then the, the rest of the book, the final chapters are that farthest concentric circle, which the Bible uses the words uttermost parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth, to the far reaches of our planet. And I love when I'm able to travel to these far reaches and to bring the gospel. Some of you know we had an opportunity a few years ago to go to the island nation of Fiji, and there we were able to bring Bibles, and as we brought Bibles ashore on a on a motorboat with no dock, and you have to roll up your pant leg and take off your shoes and carry Bibles ashore, I'm like, I'm back in the Bible. I'm back in the in the New Testament. I'm in the book of Acts here, and when we get to the school on the island, the principal, and this isn't just a, a Christian school, this is every school, the principal says, hey, would you all not just give out the Bibles in an assembly, would you explain what the Bible's all about? And so they would assemble the, all the kids in the school, and we were just in heaven. Can you imagine telling a pastor to explain to children what the Bible's all about? And of course, that's the gospel. And so we have those opportunities to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I love the fact that we have so many missionaries that have come out of our church and are doing that day in and day out. Pray for them. Today we live in a time when you can contact them, encourage them, make it a point, 
Make sure you're on their email list. Make sure you reply to them and say, hey, we're so excited. We're thinking about you. We're praying for you. Uh, Know when their birthdays are. Encourage them, folks. You all have that ministry. And if we all take part in that, our missionaries will be flooded, which is what I want, because they're taking the gospel to that farthest circle, the uttermost parts of the earth. The book of Acts has been called the fifth gospel. And and I think that's a really good description of the book because it's a continuation of the gospels. You know, Luke, the author of the book of Luke, is the author of the book of Acts. And so it just flows naturally from the gospels into this record of the birth of the church. Uh, Remember, it's, it's kind of a funnel. All the gospels funnel into Acts. Uh, Matthew ended with the resurrection. Mark ended with the ascension. Luke ended with the promise of the Holy Spirit. John ended with the promise of Jesus' return. And in the first chapter of Acts, in the, really the first few verses, all four of those themes are picked up. I love studying the book of Acts. The key verse, or one of the key verses, I would say, is in chapter 1, verse 3. When it says, to whom also he showed himself alive. This is Jesus. How do we know that the Bible is true? How do we know that he is God? Because he showed himself alive. Okay, we have proof. We we don't have to be ignorant to be a Christian. Actually, Christians are some of the smartest people in the world. Not to say that it's not faith. It's, it's certainly faith. But we have so much evidence to, to show us that what we believe is true. And, and some of the evidence that it's referring to here, it says he showed himself alive after his passion. That's his, his physical suffering by many infallible proofs. What does that mean? That means all of the, the times he was seen after his resurrection, while he was still on the earth for those 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And the Bible records 10 appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. And so it's awesome to know that the Bible can be counted on, that Jesus is who he said he was, God in the flesh, and that his sacrifice for our sins was acceptable and proven by his resurrection. He ascended into heaven, And then his followers were told to wait, folks. If you want to know my biggest flaw, I've got many, but waiting is one of them. I I don't have that naturally. That's something that God has to help us with. When we when we have a flaw, uh, and and we have to trust the Lord in those areas, and they had to wait, and I think that had to be one of the hardest things, is to wait. After all that they had seen and all the excitement, they had to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And the Spirit did come. On the day of Pentecost, the Jewish feast, they uh, had the Holy Spirit come upon them while they were in the upper room. And we know all of the details of that amazing day. Now, Peter, right after that, or right during that, remember they they had been speaking in known tongues and and, and Peter was one of them. And they accused the, the disciples of being drunk. These guys that don't drink are drunk. You remember that accusation? And then Peter, the one who had two months earlier denied knowing Jesus three times, preaches one of the most powerful sermons in recorded history. I only wish I could preach a sermon like Peter. He went from scared and afraid to a bold, incredible man of God that that gave a zinger of a sermon. 
My next sermon uh, in the book of Acts is going to talk about how to grow a mega church without gimmicks, worldly music, and you know, seeking uh, to please the, the, the seekers, okay? And, and that, that's exactly how the early church grew. It, by the end of this sermon, the people, the audience, the Jews from all over the world that were in Jerusalem, they were shocked. They were stunned. They couldn't hardly believe what they had heard that uh, Peter's sermon had included. There was a sign on an electricity pole. And it said this, danger to touch these wires will result in instant death. Anyone found doing so will be severely prosecuted. Peter preached a powerful sermon and the folks that heard it were shocked. Shocked. He had a shocked audience. Acts 2.37, we'll pick it up here. Now, when they heard this, This was his sermon, his powerful sermon. They were pricked in their heart. The word pricked, the verb pricked in Greek means to strike, to prick violently, to stun. They were stunned. Their mouths were probably agape as they stood there being convicted. It said they were pricked in their heart. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? The Spirit of God had convicted them and convinced them of the truth of Peter's words. And it dawned on them that they had allowed the Jewish Messiah to be killed. What are we going to do? You know, they probably felt like, well, there's no hope for us. But aren't you glad there's always hope? By the way, it wasn't the Jewish people that killed Jesus. It wasn't the Gentiles, the Romans, that killed Jesus. It was all of us. Because if you're a sinner, he died willingly for your sin. No one could have taken Jesus and killed him. But he died for us. But the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, one God, three persons, the Spirit of God's job is to convince the world of the truth of what you're telling them about Jesus. That's what I love about giving the gospel is all you have to do is share the gospel. You don't have to have every answer. You don't have to be an attorney. All you have to do is open your mouth and share with people that there's hope, that there's a savior, that there's salvation and it's through Jesus and he's God and he died and he rose again and he paid for the whole world's sins. And if you'll trust in him, you will be saved forever. It's that simple. And then the spirit of God comes in and, and convicts of the truth and convinces of the truth of what we just said. How do you know that? Well, in John 16, in verse eight, Jesus was telling about the spirit. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The world tries to deny these things, but these things are true and are coming. These people in Jerusalem were desperate. What shall we do? That's how all people should be that don't know the Lord. What are we going to do? We almost feel like we're, we're sunk. We're out of luck. We can't do anything. And that's true. But Jesus did it all for us. And all we have to do is believe to trust in him. And then we're saved. So the the people in Jerusalem were exactly where they needed to be 
to be saved. What are they going to do? What do they need to do? What shall we do? And then there's an answer. It's really a simple answer. Now, uh, the, the next few words of Acts 2 and verse 38, the first part of 38, has been misinterpreted and has led a lot of people to feel like they had to do a certain work to be saved. And I'm going to get into that. Most of the rest of my message is about this topic. But it's not. It's not complicated. It's simple. The answer is simple. What are we going to do, they said. And Peter said in Acts 2.38, unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, you know the, 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 the wrong interpretation probably that came out of that. And there's actually a couple of things, but the, the main one is that people feel in order to be saved, they need to believe or repent, and I'll explain that in a second, and be baptized. And my message is titled, Can Water Wash Away Sin? Because there is a lot of people that believe and a lot of churches that teach, in order for you to be saved, you need to be water baptized. And when they say water baptized, they don't mean by just any water. They don't mean by some other church's water. They mean that they have the the special water in their baptistry. And if you're not baptized with their water, you're lost. Okay? We're really going to cover that today. But first, let's talk about repentance. And the book of Acts uses this a lot. It's about 10 times found in the book of Acts that, that we need to repent. And we do. We do need to repent. Most people, though, when you say you need to repent to be saved, what they think is they have to do it. They have to be sorry or if they have to change their life or if they have to be doing acts of penance, repent. When the Greek word is a simple word. It's metanaeo, and it means this. It means to change your mind. That's all it means. And a lot of people say, well, it means to change your mind, which leads to a change of behavior. That's not what it means. It means to change your mind. Now, I hope it would lead to a change of behavior, but that doesn't save you. What saves you is changing your mind. What did these people need to change their mind about? They had allowed the Messiah to be killed. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They need to change their mind and believe he's the Messiah. That's It's that simple. That's what repent means. Now, I don't use it when I give the gospel. I don't use the word repent because these days it's confusing. I don't think it's the best English word that we could have used. But if we know what the definition is to change your mind and that's it, then as long as you explain it, there's other words I don't use when I give the gospel. I don't use the word justification or propitiation because those are technical words that it is true it's part of the gospel but you learn about these things later the simple terms are the bible terms the the book of john uses the the terms of believing believe and so that's what i use when i give the gospel it's it the book of john was the the purpose of the book of john was that people might know that jesus the son of god and believe and be saved so I don't use the word repent, but it's here in the, in, the, in the book of Acts a number of times in relation to salvation. So it's a biblical concept, okay? As long as you understand it means to change your mind. Now, the next phrase really has led to a lot of confusion in that, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. Because they think that to be baptized is what cleanses you from sin. I was at the dig at Shiloh in Israel for the first time. Uh, 
We were there to film the archaeologists and the volunteers as they were doing incredible work. And I was not knowing this, but sitting across from a very famous man that has one of the biggest internet followings. I didn't know that about him. We're just sitting across from each other at a table. Others are kind of listening in because I think he has a a pattern of asking this question to new people at the dig. And he goes, Pastor Scudder, what do you believe about baptismal regeneration? Which is the the technical term used to for someone that believes you have to be baptized to be regenerated or to be saved. And I was kind of like, well, didn't see it coming. I didn't think we were going to have a discussion about uh, the, this topic right there. Uh, but we were having it, and people were listening, and I can kind of see them all leaning in. Oh, what's he going to say? How's he going to answer this? And the answer came to me, and uh, I think it's a biblical answer. And I said to him, I said, I've traveled the world, and I've been to many places, and I've never, ever found any water that can wash away sin. And I tell you what, he zipped it. He didn't say anything else. And all the people kind of like liked that answer and walked away. But, but here's, here's the thing. Now, if there's a confusing verse that if you take this at face value, you might think I need to be baptized for the remission of sin. Okay. Now, how do I know that that's not what that means? I need to be water baptized in order to have my sins washed away. How do I know that's not what it means? Here's a simple truth when you're studying the Bible. It's very simple. Interpret the unclear verses with the clear. In other words, what is the clear, what is the clear message from the Bible about salvation? Soteriology is the the technical theological term. What, what does the Bible say about salvation? Well, let's just go through some of the verses and some of these you know very well. Many, many, many verses in the Bible say that salvation is not by works. It's by, uh, by faith. It's by trusting in. It's not anything we can do. What are some of those verses? Well, you know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever is baptized and gives to, gives to church and gives to charity and, and helps people and get, cleans up their life and does works of penance and believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Did I add anything to the Bible? By the way, it's very dangerous. I did it tongue in cheek. And I know you guys are all uh, shaking your head. No, which is right. Uh, and if I did teach that, then you need to remove me immediately from the pulpit. Amen. You're careful about saying that, but you should, you really should. Okay. So It doesn't say anything about any of those works that I just mentioned, including water baptism. It says, whosoever, what? Believeth in him. And they, those that believe in baptism for salvation say, well, if you believe, then you'll be baptized. Well, not necessarily. I hope you will. Hey, we're Baptist. We have visitors every Sunday come to our church and we say, how did you hear about us? I Googled Baptist church in the area and there's not many anymore. I'm glad we left it in our name. Why did you leave it in your name? Because we're Baptists. Uh, we don't believe in baptism for salvation, but we believe that after you get saved, to, to follow Jesus Christ and, and to follow in obedience is to be immersed in water. Why? Because it shows a testimony to the world that you belong to Jesus and you're willing to identify publicly in his death and his resurrection. Just tonight, as I was ready to come up, my Three grandkids ran into my office and I love seeing them. And we have a little ritual where, where, um, they, they hug me 
because they love me and they get candy. And I'm sure it's because they love me. And, you know, just a little side thing is the candy. So they all run in and hug me and they get their candy. And then we, we've also done this little thing with the grandkids sometimes. And it's usually when we go to this one restaurant, they, maybe it's because at one time I started doing this at this one restaurant. So every time we go there, they ask me to ask them Bible questions and we'll ask them, you know, uh, who killed Goliath and, you know, just go through the things and we'll throw in some trick ones like how long was Moses on the ark? Yeah, you, you got that one. But uh, so, so tonight, right before I come up, Charlie says, hey, Gramps, ask me a Bible question. Okay. I said, <laughs> since this is my uh, message, I'll be preaching soon. I said, why should a person get water baptized? And little Charlie, who is five? Somebody tell me how old my grandson is. Five. Thank you. <laughs> they just keep ch- changing ages. I don't understand. So he goes, well, people get baptized to get saved. I said, well, uh, no, (laughs) no. And I believe he is saved, but I I think he was just confused on this. And so I explained it to him. Okay, why should somebody get baptized? Because we can show the world that we belong to Jesus Christ. And we want to do that publicly because people can't see faith. It's something that happens on the inside. So I want to, on the outside, show people that I identify with Jesus and his death and resurrection, okay? And, and that I've been baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God, okay? So there's some amazing concepts. Baptism is one of the greatest things that you can do after you get saved. And one of the first things you need to do after you get saved, and if you haven't been water baptized after your salvation, please talk to us and we will make sure that we do a water baptism for you. But it's not to save you. Okay, why? Because here in John it says, whosoever believeth in him. How about John 3, 36? He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. You have it right now, present possessive. You have everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth in him. If you needed to be water baptized and believe, shouldn't it say it here? Wouldn't it be bad to leave that out? Yes, absolutely. And that's not all. I mean, there's there's dozens, but I'm gonna give you I don't know, six or seven. Romans four or five. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Romans eleven six. And if by grace, then it is no more works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. It's pretty clear, isn't it? It's by grace. It's not by works. It can't be both. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. If you have to get water baptized to be saved, that's works. Now, people that believe in it argue that it's not works, but it is works, okay? Acts thirteen thirty nine, and you're gonna find it in Acts several times. Uh, in this book that uh, has confused people in a couple places with baptism, it says it very clearly in other places. Acts thirteen thirty nine, And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Think of all the things in Moses' law that you'd have to do to, to be saved. You can't be saved by those things. And therefore, you can't be saved by works. And uh, Acts sixteen thirty one, they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. How, how can I be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So it's very clear, scripture after scripture. Uh, here's another one, Acts 26, 18. 
This is uh, Jesus speaking to Saul, who would become Paul, as he's recounting his experience on the road to Damascus. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive, here it is, forgiveness of sins. That's what we're talking about in Acts 2, remission of sins. And inheritance among them which are sanctified by what? Faith. By faith, that is in me, something that he had accepted. He had trusted in Jesus, who he thought was a fraud, who thought he was an imposter. He didn't believe in the resurrection, but then he met Jesus. And then he believed that Jesus was who he said he was. But it was faith, not baptism. And later I'm going to show you a verse where it's conclusive that baptism, water baptism can't save. But let's just say this. Let's set up a scenario and let's say that there's a man named George who uh, comes up to a pastor after the invitation at church, uh, the invitation to be saved, and the pastor gives a gospel message and, and he says he wants to be saved. And, uh, and the pastor, the counselor tells George, hey, you just need to put your trust in Jesus Christ, that he paid for your sins, that he rose again, and just trust in him and him alone. And so George did that right then and there. And that evening, the church was going to have a water baptism service. And George says, hey, can I be baptized tonight? And the pastor said, absolutely, that would be wonderful. So that night, George came, and he was changing into the clothes to be baptized, and he suffered a major heart attack. Where is George? Heaven or hell? I think most people, even baptismal regenerationists, would say he's in heaven. Now, they would say it's because he had the desire to be water baptized. Uh, You know, that's not why he would be saved in our hypothetical situation. By the way, hypothetical situations often can happen. Now, it's never happened in this church. Somebody died right before they were water baptized. We've had a few die in the baptism, but at baptistry, but we're not going to talk about that. No, everyone would say that George put his faith in Jesus Christ and, and is in heaven. Now, what's the conclusive proof here? What did Jesus tell the thief dying on the cross next to him? The, the, thief, gave, the thief said that he was the son of God, that he was the, the Messiah. First, he had been mocking him, but then he changed his mind. He repented and he believed. And Jesus said, today... You will be with me in paradise. And then the thief, as he was about to die, wiggled off the cross, found a pond, found a pastor, got baptized, got back on the cross and died. No. Folks, that's how simple salvation is. There's a point of salvation. It's the point of faith. It's when you believe that Jesus died for your sins on a cross and rose again. And at that very moment, you're saved. You don't have to do anything else, including water baptism. Now you're going to say, okay, we know what the verse doesn't mean. Well, how do we interpret this verse? Acts 2.38, let's go over it again. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. Well, let's zoom in on one word. It's a very simple word, the word for. For the remission of sin. It's a word ice. It's a Greek preposition, uh, E-I-E-S. E-I-S, okay? So when when we say the word ice, it's it can mean for or in order to, okay? But there's there's other meanings. Another meaning is because of. So if, if we're reading the verse and we're saying that uh, Peter said to repent and be baptized any one of you in the name of Jesus Christ in order to have remission of sin, 
That's how most people, or that's how some people would take this, especially those that believe in baptismal regeneration. But what if, if, if we use the, the other definition of ice, the preposition, because of, now all of a sudden it fits with all the scriptures that we have. The weight of scripture now agrees if we use that proper definition and context of the word ice, the preposition ice, because of. So let's plug that in. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, because you have been, uh, your sins have been washed away or you have received the remission of sins. Because of fits there, and therefore that, that helps us understand what this verse means. If I were to tell my wife, take two aspirin for your headache, it's obvious to everyone that I don't mean take two aspirin to get a headache, in order to have a headache, when I say to take, take two aspirin for your headache, headache, I'm saying because you already have a headache, take two aspirin. Okay? So it's, it's just a little simple method of interpretation. It fits. It, 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 it's exactly what this means. Now, let's imagine that there was a, a man named Bob. And at the very last second, Bob's boss finds out that their factory in Dallas, Bob lives in Chicago and works in Chicago, but they have a factory in Dallas and the factory needs a part. They're about to break down and they need this part from Chicago. So Bob is tasked by the boss to take this box that has the part and hurry, drive to the airport, get on an airplane and get to Dallas. Okay. And so Bob does this and that's great. Now what got Bob to Dallas? Picking up the box. No, what got Bob to Dallas was hurrying to the airport, getting on an airplane. Okay, so sometimes it's just the way we speak. We have to understand in context what this, what this is saying. And, and there's another grammatical reason that I believe this is uh, repent and, and be baptized in light of your remission of sin, in light of the fact that you've received, you've changed your mind about Jesus and you've received him by faith, um, that you are baptized in light of that. Um, it's a grammatical reason. It's a little technical. It's not that bad. So let me just go over it real quick. In Acts 2.38, the verb repent is plural. And so is the pronoun your. Now it's the word your is not in our text, uh, but it should be in the original. It's in the Greek for uh, the remission of your sins, okay, is, is where that pronoun should be. And the p- pronoun is plural in the original. For the remission of your sins and repent is plural. So those two things go together. But guess what is not plural? Be baptized. Okay. And the fact that be baptized is not plural means that it can be separated or pulled out as uh, not part of that sentence, setting it off from the rest of the sentence. And that interpretation that I just gave you to repent and to be baptized in light of or because of your your salvation, uh, because of your remission of sin to be baptized. That agrees with Acts 10.43. Let's look at that. And again, we're pulling other passages in the same book that help us understand this. Acts 10.43, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. There it is. It's that simple. That's a clear passage that tells me what I need to do to be, for my sins to be washed away. And it's not water that washes away sin. 
It is something else. I'll talk about that in a second. So let's go over a couple more verses while we're talking about baptismal regeneration. Now let's go over a couple more verses that people use to, to say that it's true. And there's only a few. Um, Acts 22.16 is another one that they'll use. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So let me ask you a question. What would wash away sins? Being baptized or calling on the name of the Lord in faith? Well, we know by all the other verses, it's calling upon the name of the Lord in faith. That's how we're, we're saved from our sins. So it has the same idea as the verse that we just talked about. Baptism is linked here because it's, it's something that should follow. It's something that shows our faith. It is something that should be linked to our salvation, but isn't causal. It's not, it's not how we're saved. It's something that flows from our salvation. Another passage that people use is 1 Peter 3.21. It says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. They say, well, there it is. Baptism saves us. What does the next part say? Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. So in other words, it's not talking about a physical water washing over our body and taking off dirt. Okay? But the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So is Peter saying water baptism saves us? No. The, the parentheses, the parenthetic shoots that down, not putting away the flesh, uh, the filth of the flesh. Water can only clean flesh, but what can clean our soul? It is 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So how can I be cleansed? Not by water, but by blood. Peter is connecting baptism as an outward sign of an internal belief. Getting wet doesn't save, but an appeal to God for a clean conscience will save you. Now, what's the final nail in this coffin, I think? 1 Corinthians 1.17. This is just beautiful. And I think this might be one of the only things. Use the thief on the cross if you're talking to someone about baptism for salvation. And then use 1 Corinthians 1.17. Paul says, for Christ sent me... Not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Okay? So that's clearly, clearly delinks water baptism from gospel that saves. So always interpret the unclear with the clear. Everyone have that? Everyone understand that? It's very important. And make sure that we never enter, have works enter into the, the simple message of salvation. Now, here's one final, very, very clear, crystal clear verse on justification by faith. Galatians 2.16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. You see how clear it is? See how simple it is? Now again, we believe water baptism is important as a step of obedience to follow Christ in fellowship, to be not ashamed of him, to be public and bold and say, I belong to Jesus Christ. I have been baptized into his body. Uh, I've been resurrected with him. And I want to show that by this beautiful, beautiful picture we call water baptism as a step 
of obedience and fellowship. Not for salvation, but in light of our salvation. Now, let's get back to our text in Acts 2, and we'll wrap it up in the rest of 38, and we'll go through 40. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, after you've received the gift of salvation, how by changing your mind about who Jesus is, putting your trust in him, you've received the gift of salvation by faith, now they're going to be given a a gift from God. Okay, You're going to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Isn't that wonderful? For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off. Who are afar off? It's the Gentiles. That's us. If you're Gentile, some of you are, are Jewish. By the way, if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that doesn't mean that you're not Jewish anymore. It means that you're now a fulfilled Jew, that you're a completed Jew. If Jesus is the Messiah, the most Jewish thing you can do is believe in him, right? Okay, so it's, it's for, it, the promise is unto you. He's speaking to a Jewish crowd and to your children. This is the promise. If you believe, you get a gift called the Holy Spirit that indwells you. And then to all that are far off, we even get this benefit because we're not Jew or Gentile. We're one in the body of Christ. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now, how many does God call? We don't, we don't believe in what's called Calvinism. We believe God calls every person to be saved. Jesus died for all people. But it still has to be an act of a person's faith to trust, to receive the gift of eternal life. But the call is to all. Don't ever forget that. Okay? And then verse 40, and with many other words did he testify and exhort, this is Peter uh, kind of wrapping up his sermon, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. We all need to be saved. We live in an untoward world. We live in a, a wicked place, don't we? We need to be saved from our sins, from the penalty of our sins. And then once you've received by faith Jesus Christ, you now have the Holy Spirit that will help in life and also be a guarantee of eternal inheritance. In Ephesians 1, it says in verse 13, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, okay, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also that ye, what, believed, there it is again, Ye were what? Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. They received the Holy Spirit and it was received in a very public and obvious way. It's not as obvious anymore because we have the completed scripture, but the Spirit of God is still in you if you're saved. You say, well, sometimes I don't feel that. It's probably because you're not walking and yielding to the Lord and yielding to the Spirit in your life. Okay? which is the earnest of our inheritance. It's like you put something down as a promise. You put money down, an earnest payment for a house or something. It's like a down payment. The Holy Spirit is the, is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. There's going to be a day when we are going to be in glory. Our salvation will be final. We'll be saved not only from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but from the presence of sin. Aren't that exciting? Aren't you longing? For that day, the day that you'll be in glory, the day the Holy Spirit has guaranteed you. Let me ask you a question. If you died today, where would you go? And I hope the answer is to heaven. And I hope the reason you said that is because you put your faith 
in Jesus, not in a priest or a pastor, not in a, a religion, not in works or penance, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the son of God who came, fulfilled all the prophecies, died and rose again and is alive today and wants to save you from your sins. Can water wash away sin? No, but Jesus' blood can. He paid for your sins by shedding his blood. And if you'll put your trust in him, you'll be saved today, tomorrow, and forever.